It is eerily quiet around here. The last couple weeks have been filled with screaming and dramatic social media posts, outrage on the message boards, and then this week, crickets. On the last show that we did on this feed, the Sonic Truth podcast, we dropped Nate Liss, the peacemaker, the ultimate weapon, and ended all wars with Nate Rabbit's rapping. Nate Rabbit's rapping ended all wars. The rap battle that ended the war. So now I just sit here with my thoughts as redraft season approaches. It's a little bit sad to see Dynasty League startups come and go, rookie drafts completed. You can see the transition happening. A lot more talk of seasonal ADPs, and we will be releasing the seasonal rankings on playerprofiler.com in the weeks ahead. We're not going to wait until July. They will be out late May, early June. Look out for it, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. And I think you'll notice something interesting on the rankings of tight ends. You will see multiple white Ivy League tight ends in the top 30. And I know the first one you're thinking immediately, Cameron Brait, yes, because Harvard, of course, Harvard, Cameron Brait went to Harvard, but Cameron Brait's over. We're still going to rank him in the top 30, but he's over. And yet, I see so many in the fantasy football community that cannot let Cameron Brait go. Of all the players in fantasy football, how is it that Cameron Brait's the one you can't let go of? How is that possible? How is that the guy you can't let go of? We've talked about Cameron Brait being the number one loser from the NFL draft because the Buccaneers drafted Cameron Brait's replacement, the super versatile and polished O.J. Howard, who is ready to play and contribute now. So why are we talking about Cameron Brait on social media? I don't know. Again, he will be in the top 30 tight ends because he was productive last year and there are not 30 tight ends in the league that you can name that anyone could possibly forecast outproducing Cameron Brait in fantasy football in 2017. But that doesn't mean Cameron Brait is worth discussing. I thought we would just say, hey, Cameron Brait was the most obvious loser from the NFL draft of all the incumbents. He was the one that broke down crying on draft night because he lost his job and he'll never have that role as the starting tight end in the NFL ever again, barring an injury to O.J. Howard. Draft day was a very sad day for Cameron Brait, obviously. So why can't we just move on? There are hundreds of other players to talk about in the NFL, but but the buzzards continue to contact the show, and you can contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com, constructing these elaborate rationalizations for Cameron Brait's ownership. Gotta keep holding on to him in Dynasty. He's a guy you could throw a dart on and redraft. What? Why? Why of all the players are you throwing darts on Cameron Brait? I'd rather throw a dart on Will Ty. I'd rather throw a dart on Vance McDonald. I'd rather throw a dart on Deion Sims. I'd rather throw a dart on Lance Kendricks. Get out of here with Cameron Brait. But I keep hearing these rationalizations that Cameron Brait will see a lot of snaps this year. Why? Because... He's going to be their slot receiver. Except everybody agrees that Chris Godwin is one of the most polished route runners and the best contested catch 
receiver in the NFL draft, making him the best fit for Jameis Winston and the ideal slot receiver for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If I'm the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and I'm putting together personnel packages and mapping out the plays I'm going to call in week one, I'm going to call plays with three wide receiver sets, predominantly not 12 personnel, the two tight end sets, because that's the justification. Well, I see the Buccaneers calling a lot of 12 personnel. Why? Why? If you call 12 personnel, then that takes Chris Godwin off the field, and Chris Godwin is going to be a weapon in week one. And Cameron Brait is not a weapon. Cameron Brait runs a 4.82 at 235 pounds. That comes out to an 87.8 height-adjusted speed score. How many times have we talked about players on this show with a speed score below 90? It just rarely happens. Because most of the players in the database on playerprofiler.com with speed scores below 90 are not contributors. Cameron Brait posted an underwhelming 20% dominator rating at Harvard. Is a non-athlete, because if you look across his workout metrics, none of them exceed the 50th percentile. Burst score, agility score, none. Because he's undersized, 6'5", 235, because he wasn't a dominant college receiver out of the tight end position because he's not particularly athletic. I mean, Cameron Brait's one of those few players in the NFL that was fantasy relevant in 2016, was a starter for an NFL franchise, all the while checking zero boxes on his prospect profile. Zero! But then you look at his on-field productivity and it wasn't actually that bad. 527 air yards last year, that was number five in the NFL. He led all tight ends in touchdowns. <laughs> That's how you post a plus 31.5% target premium. So when you compare what Cameron Bright was giving the Buccaneers on a per-target basis compared to the other receivers in the passing game, like Adam Humphreys, what you were getting from Cameron Bright was a significant premium. How do you explain that? I can't explain the efficiency. I don't know where it came from. My only guess is randomness. He was thrust into a situation, getting 82 targets, and because defenses were more focused on other players in the passing game, like Mike Evans, it gave Cameron Brait more room to operate, and he ended up catching 70% of his targets. I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to dispute that. I mean, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers saw it last year. They saw him catch 70% of their targets. And then they went out and drafted O.J. Howard in the first round. What does that tell you? It tells you that Cameron Brait is and always will be the Cameron Brait that we saw come out of Harvard checking zero boxes. And that every player that makes an NFL franchise has Cameron Brait's 2016 season somewhere inside them if things break right. But that's not enough reason to construct this elaborate rationalization for going out and acquiring a player like Cameron Brait. I think somebody somewhere overpaid for Cameron Brait in 2016, and they're just not ready to let go. They're just not ready to write it off as a sunk cost, but you need to be writing off Cameron Brait as a sunk cost. And Cameron Brait isn't even the best white Ivy League tight end in the NFL. Because that's Seth DeValve. It's an interesting dichotomy looking at Seth DeValve versus Cameron Brait. These are both white Ivy League tight ends between the ages of 24 and 25, playing for two bottom feeder franchises that are in the midst of a renaissance. And both Cameron Brait and Seth DeValve were usurped 
on day one of the NFL draft by first round tight end selections by their respective teams. So you can imagine Seth DeValve and Cameron Brait calling each other on the phone, consoling one another on draft night. Geez, Cameron, I thought I was going to be the starting tight end this year. I was ready to break out. And then the Browns went and drafted David Njoku. Damn it! Oh, tell me about it, Seth. Did you know I posted 11.4 PPR fantasy points per game last year? That was number 11 in the NFL, Seth. I was ready to join Greg Olson among the league's top fantasy tight ends. And then, oh, the Buccaneers went and drafted OJ Howard, and I immediately started drinking heavily. You can see that conversation between those two tight ends. Then they conference in Ben Bronecker into a three-way conversation. Yet another white Ivy League tight end in the NFL. And Ben Bronecker's like, well, listen to this. I thought I was going to get my opportunity when Zach Miller got hurt, but the Chicago Bears went out and signed Deion Sims to a relatively lucrative contract and then drafted Adam Shaheen in the second round. I'm on my 10th beer, fellas. E pluribus unum. I just figured Latin, Ivy League. I don't know why I said that. So the first three tight ends selected in the NFL draft, we're not counting Evan Ingram because we don't know what he is. The top three true NFL tight ends drafted in the NFL draft in 2017 all buried white Ivy League tight ends. And if I had to draft one of them this year in fantasy football, it wouldn't be Cameron Brait. Certainly not Ben Bronecker, though I did love Bronk last year. And by love, I mean I was drafting him in the final round of the deepest dynasty leagues that I participated in. But this year, I do like Seth DeValve because while Cameron Brait has to compete with the older, more polished O.J. Howard, who all scouts agree is an exceptional blocker, ready to contribute on day one. That's not how David Njoku is described by those within the NFL's scouting industrial complex. The criticism of David Njoku was he's not a good blocker at all. He can't block. I disagree with that. There's no way that someone as big and strong and athletic as David Njoku can't also be a dominant blocker in the NFL. It's just a matter of developing and learning the technique. David Njoku is incredibly young, 21 years old. He will learn. And when the season starts, he will have just turned 21. So it makes sense that David Njoku will take some time to develop. And if David Njoku's not ready to be a starting tight end in the NFL in week one, it's going to fall to Seth DeValve. Seth DeValve, who, unlike Cameron Brait, knows that he has to get bigger in order to be an NFL contributor. He's up to 260 pounds. Seth DeValve came into the league looking like Cameron Brait, 235-pound move tight end. But the difference with Seth DeValve is much better athlete. His Spark X score, the overarching athleticism metric on playerprofiler.com, 124.9, 90th percentile. That's because DeValve's burst score and his agility score on Player Profiler are both above the 90th percentile. Seth DeValve is rising in our rankings. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. Check out our dynasty rankings and you can see there's Seth DeValve just creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. Because Seth DeValve is better equipped to produce fantasy points in 2017 than Cameron Bright. Because Seth DeValve is bigger and more athletic and was equally productive at the college level, just like Cameron Bright in the Ivy League. And Seth DeValve is in a better situation because his competition for tight end snaps is much younger and more raw than Cameron Bright's competition, O.J. Howard. So a fun thing that you can do in Dynasty Leagues, particularly now with 
tight end premium being so popular is you can draft David Njoku in the late first round of a dynasty rookie draft, but also make sure that you're rostering Seth DeValve. You're locking up the tight ends for the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns do not have a number three wide receiver of consequence. The Buccaneers do. So all the arguments, all the reverse engineered rationalizations for continuing to roster Cameron Brait should actually be shifted over to Seth DeValve because the Browns don't have Chris Godwin ticketed for slot duties. They get Rashard Higgins. Who would you rather have in the slot, Rashard Higgins or Chris Godwin? It's going to be a lot easier for Seth DeValve to win slot snaps competing with Rashard Higgins than it would be for Cameron Brait to usurp Chris Godwin in the slot. That's just silly to think about. But you could absolutely see Seth DeValve lining up in the slot frequently because they don't have a slot receiver with an impressive prospect profile or proven performance at the NFL level in Cleveland. And in a lot of leagues, that's what I've ended up doing with my late first rounder. We talked to a lot of fantasy analysts on the show debating what the hell do we do with these late first rounders? Because once Mixon's off the board, there's a significant drop in the value of those dynasty rookie picks. The late first round of dynasty rookie drafts is not someplace that anyone should be excited to draft. And if you can't trade out of it, you take David Njoku. But the counter argument to that tactic is, well, you shouldn't be doing that because you can just buy David Njoku at a discount in November or December because tight ends take extra time to develop. It's unlikely that David Njoku will be a significant fantasy contributor in his rookie season, particularly on the Browns, who don't project to be a prolific offense. It's not going to be a lot of red zone targets to go around in Cleveland. So for a lot of reasons, David Njoku's not an exciting player for the 2017 season. I don't know anyone that just has to have David Njoku in redraft. Do you? No. No. Why? So just wait. You can get him for a discount in November and December, right? Right? Wrong! The wait and trade for rookie tight ends in November and December is one of the most misguided Dynasty League tactics. Because, just think it through for a second. Who are the people that are drafting David Njoku and OJ Howard in the first round? They're fantasy gamers that love David Njoku and OJ Howard. You need to give your competitors some credit. This is what's maddening to me about Dynasty League football. A lot of the Dynasty League tactics that I read about assume that all your competitors are idiots. You think that your competitors don't know that tight ends take an exceptionally long time to develop? You think they don't know that? And you're going to go ahead and avoid drafting David Njoku because you assume that your competitors are ignorant and gullible? That you can just fleece them in November? That by the time November rolls around, they will have forgotten the reasons why they liked David Njoku in the first place? Of course not! That concept is just silly! If you love David Njoku and you believe that David Njoku has one of the best prospect profiles we've seen in a long time and his upside is the number one tight end in fantasy, if you believe that, why wouldn't you assume that your competitor who's drafting David Njoku also believes that? The probability is high that your competitor who's drafting David Njoku appreciates him as much or more than you do. So good luck trading for him in November. 
By the time November, December rolls around, the affinity for David Njoku and O.J. Howard, regardless of their 2017 stats, will remain unchanged in Dynasty. I can promise you on our Dynasty rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, David Njoku and O.J. Howard's position will not be depressed significantly if their production is muted this season. (laughs) Nonsense. And as I talked about with Ben Cummins, the beauty of David Njoku is he's being drafted after O.J. Howard, and David Njoku is a superior prospect to O.J. Howard. So the the reason that David Njoku is so attractive is because if someone else is interested in drafting a rookie tight end and they're selecting in front of you in slot 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, odds are they're going to select O.J. Howard. And then if you're selecting in slots 11 or 12, odds are David Njoku will be there for you. A gift. A gift that you cannot ignore. And you're a derelict in your duty as a Dynasty League team owner if you don't draft David Njoku in that spot. Any other selection would likely be suboptimal. David Njoku led all of college football last year with 11.2 yards after the catch per reception. Per reception. It's amazing. You go to his profile on playerprofiler.com. You see 16.2 yards per reception. You see 87th percentile. Well, that's pretty amazing. It's really good. It's what you would expect from a high-quality wide receiver at the college level. But what's amazing is how that sausage was made. Brad Kaya was not a downfield thrower. Brad Kaya was terrible last year. And so David Njoku was catching dump-offs because that's all Brad Kaya is capable of executing at any level of football. Just dump-offs, short passes, slants, and button hooks. Those are the passes that David Njoku was catching. So how does he compile a 16.2 yards per reception in that case (laughs) because he's David Njoku and on every single pass that he caught he rolled up 11.2 yards after the catch because he's the second coming of Travis Kelsey but go ahead just ignore him and draft Juju Smith-Schuster yeah go ahead just go ahead go ahead and do that big mistake And the big mistake is assuming that Dynasty Leagues are a perfect market, that you can just go out and acquire assets whenever you want. You have the currency, you have other players and picks, you can just go out and browse the shelves of the rosters in your Dynasty League, pick a player you would like to buy, and just purchase them. It's not that simple in Dynasty. Oftentimes you ask about a player and the other owner simply is not interested in trading with you. Or what they're offering in exchange is something completely untenable. So it's not a perfect market. That is such a false assumption about Dynasty Leagues. There is no market. Most of the assets in Dynasty Leagues are illiquid. That's why you need to be very careful about assuming that you can sell a particular player on demand or buy a particular player at any point. It's just not that simple. And I talk a lot about Dynasty roster management tactics in my book, The Dynasty Dominator. The Dynasty Dominator is available electronically. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash guides. But you can also go to Amazon, download it to your Kindle, or now buy the soft cover. The Dynasty Dominator book by Matt Kelly is available in soft cover. I'm looking at it right now. I can't believe that I am a published author. Wow, the bar has lowered on authorship now that Amazon is allowing self-publishing of soft cover books. In the Dynasty Dominator, we hone in on the tactics that will help your Dynasty League team as well as 
debunk the myriad false logic that floats around the Dynasty League community. Now, in both Dynasty Leagues and in Redraft Leagues, every day that goes by, I'm more and 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 more convinced that consolidating team backfields is an optimal roster construction tactic. And I love that the tactic is equally useful in both a redraft context and dynasty context. And not just any backfield, the backfields with prolific offenses, the backfields that generate a lot of red zone carries. Those are the backfields to focus on. Indianapolis, New England, Green Bay, New Orleans, Oakland, Seattle. I got no problem going out and acquiring Eddie Lacy, even at 250 pounds, if you own CJ ProSize. Why not? Eddie Lacy could very well be the primary early down back this year for the Seahawks. What's wrong with that? Who doesn't want the early down running back tethered to Russell Wilson? Russell Wilson creates running lanes for running backs. It's the Alfred Morris corollary. We've talked about this many times. Eddie Lacy could experience a rejuvenation in Seattle. It's highly plausible. He's been one of the best running backs in yards after contact for the last three or four years since he entered the league. And Russell Wilson helps to freeze linebackers and gives running backs a sliver of additional daylight. He did that for Thomas Rawls in 2015. Why can't he do it for Eddie Lacy in 2017? Just go down the list of teams that visit the red zone frequently and you'll find attractive backfield tandems to monopolize in both redraft and dynasty. On the last show, Ben Cummins and I spent 10 minutes talking about monopolizing the New England backfield. Those are all inexpensive assets to acquire via trade or in drafts. Start consolidating the pieces of that backfield on your rosters. Do it now. Should have started yesterday. And what about Indianapolis? Oh my God. That might be the best tandem of all because both Frank Gore and Marlon Mack are highly undervalued at this moment. And you might say, well, how is it possible? How can you say... Frank Gore is underrated. You've come on here and said that Frank Gore may not finish the season as an NFL running back. He may get hurt and be sent to IR. He may have to retire at the midpoint of the season. Or he may be a game day inactive by the end of the season because he's just so ineffective. It's very easy to see that happening to a player with well over 3,000 career touches. He was an outlier three years ago. He was an outlier two years ago. He was an outlier a year ago. I understand that. In none of those years was I pounding the table saying, you need to get Frank Gore's backup. This is the year that Frank Gore loses his fantasy relevancy. No, because... First of all, Indianapolis signed him as a free agent to a relatively lucrative contract for a running back. So you knew right there that he was evaluated by the Colts player personnel staff and was deemed to still be a quality running back. And then in years past, the Colts had not drafted a replacement for Frank Gore in the draft. There was no talk of him being cut. There was no talk of him retiring. Frank Gore thought he could continue to play and be productive, and the Colts wanted Frank Gore to continue to play and thought he would be productive. So why wouldn't fantasy gamers, even once he was in that outer bounds of outlier status, if he's signed up to play this year, he's going to play. If he's going to play in a prolific offense, he's going to score fantasy points. It's really that simple. You don't need to think about it any more than that. 
Once he gets to a place that he can't play anymore, like Arian Foster, he'll retire. But as long as Frank Gore is not retired and the Colts want him to be their primary back, you need to be drafting Frank Gore in all formats, by the way, because as inexpensive as Frank Gore is in redraft, he's pitifully cheap in Dynasty. It's it's as if his value is zero. It's weird. Because he has at least one more productive season left. And a productive season from a running back, even one season, is valuable in all fantasy formats. You can get Frank Gore outside the top 150 players drafted in Dynasty Leagues. It's stunning. Yeah, I own Frank Gore in multiple Dynasty Leagues. Because at some point you're drafting and thinking, oh my god, this is the only player left on the board that I have any confidence will produce. Why not? Ding! Draft player, Frank Gore. And in redraft, Frank Gore is going after Doug Martin, who's suspended to begin the season. He's going after Paul Perkins! He's going after Samaj P. Ryan, for which we have no certainty will start this season over Rob Kelly. We think he will, but we can't say with any kind of certainty. We're certain that Frank Gore will begin the season as the starting running back for the Colts. He's being drafted in MFL 10s at this moment behind Samaj P. Ryan, behind Doug Martin, behind Paul Perkins. Paul Perkins, who is the quintessential cardboard cutout running back. He's being drafted after Eddie Lacy. He's being drafted 30 slots after Derrick Henry, whose only hope of getting starting running back touches is for DeMarco Murray to get hurt. (laughs) This is the most prolific backfield with the least expensive running back tandem. Frank Gore's MFL 10 redraft ADP is 97. Marlon Max redraft ADP. <laughs> Wait for it. This is amazing. 158. Marlon Mack is going after Jamal Williams, <laughs> Thomas Rawls, James White, Jamal Charles, who is looking more and more likely to be cut in training camp, and players no one is excited about, like LeGarrette Blunt and Matt Forte. I mean, we talk about Marlon Mack on the show a lot, but Marlon Mack and Frank Gore are the perfect running back tandem to lock up in redraft because not only do you ensure that you will be getting the Colts' red zone touches from the running back position and there will be copious amounts of red zone visits in 2017 by the Indianapolis Colts. You don't even have to spend an eighth round pick to get those players. And it is magical. The Frank Gore, Marlon Mack combined ADP is pure fantasy football magic. It's like a sleight of hand trick that you can do this. That You can get both Frank Gore and Marlon Mack in redraft at such an inexpensive price. And I believe that the Colts will deploy Mack and Gore like the Falcons deployed Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman. Because Marlon Mack is one of the better receiving running backs in this rookie class. Marlon Mack is a phenomenal receiver out of the backfield, and like the Browns, the Colts do not have a number three wide receiver of consequence. You can absolutely see the Colts calling plays with two tailbacks in the formation, and then they'll put Marlon Mack in motion and have him run routes out of the slot. You can see that. Marlon Mack had an 11% college target share at South Florida. I mean, they could both have standalone value. Marlon Mack, the satellite back, Frank Gore, the the between-the-tackles grinder, for a prolific offense. It's rare that you have two running backs in the same offense with standalone value, but the way it does happen is when you have a highly efficient offense like the Atlanta Falcons were last season. 
Andrew Luck will finally be healthy this season after offseason shoulder surgery, and the Colts have been investing and bolstering the offensive line. Marlon Mack is drafting Marlon Mack if you're a Frank Gore owner is such a no-brainer because he's both a lottery ticket and an insurance policy. That's why you lock up these running back tandems on the prolific offenses because that second back that you're drafting, the quote-unquote backup in Marlon Mack's case, he's both a lottery ticket and an insurance policy. When you just draft a backup running back in the second half of a fantasy draft and you don't own the primary back, he's just a lottery ticket. And when you draft a running back who's just a guy to handcuff a primary back, that's just an insurance policy. If you draft Paul Perkins, but then you also make sure that you draft Wayne Gallman later, Wayne Gallman is just an insurance policy. He's not a lottery ticket because Wayne Gallman has a very low ceiling as a primary back in the NFL. He's not athletic and he's not a great receiver. So that's merely an insurance policy and that's not great value. That's not where I invest my picks in either dynasty or redraft leagues. We talked about New Orleans earlier. Why not Adrian Peterson and Alvin Kamara? I'd rather have Adrian Peterson than Doug Martin. We know Adrian Peterson is going to get the goal line work in New Orleans. You want the running backs getting the goal line work in New Orleans. As the change of pace back for the New Orleans Saints last year, Tim Hightower produced eight fantasy points per game. That was top 50. The year before that, 14.4 fantasy points per game. 14.4 fantasy points per game for Tim Hightower in 2015 as a between-the-tackles grinder only. He only posted 12 receptions. The reason why Tim Hightower was so productive at the end of 2015 is because of the rushing yards and touchdowns he was able to accumulate in just a handful of games. And Adrian Peterson may not last the whole season, understandable. But in those games where he is playing, he will be starting. And then you can easily start him in fantasy. Anyone that owns Adrian Peterson in 2017 will be starting him every week he's active. Because he's going to be getting red zone carries for the New Orleans Saints. It doesn't matter if he's no longer explosive. Tim Hightower has never been explosive. Tim Hightower has a 111.1 burst score on playerprofiler.com. That combines the vertical jump and the broad jump into one equally weighted metric. That's 13th percentile. That's when he was 22 years old. Tim Hightower produced over 14 fantasy points per game at age 30. I guarantee if Tim Hightower participated in the broad jump and the vertical jump at age 30, his burst score would have been well under 110. But it didn't matter because he was receiving high leverage touches for the New Orleans Saints, the ultimate fantasy points engine in the NFL. So you want Adrian Peterson. I can't believe I said that. I just can't believe I said that. I can't believe those words tumbled from my lips. You want Adrian Peterson. I just... I can't believe I said it. I did it. I said it. I'll say it again. You want Adrian Peterson. Ah, I can't believe I'm saying it. But I do. I want him. He's just as inexpensive as Frank Gore. And where's Alvin Kamara? Huh? Alvin Kamara is being drafted after Kareem Hunt. After Latavius Murray. Now, does Kamara have Marlon Max upside? No. Alvin Kamara cannot be an every-down workhorse in the NFL. Marlon Mack absolutely has that in his range of outcomes. But Alvin Kamara will also be 
a featured satellite back for the New Orleans Saints. The New Orleans Saints are another team that lacks a number three wide receiver. So you can see Alvin Kamara and Adrian Peterson being on the field at the same time as the Saints put Kamara out in motion and run routes out of the slot. Just like I believe the Colts will run Marlon Mack out of the slot. And if something happens to Adrian Peterson or something happens to Mark Ingram, Alvin Kamara's role will expand. Now, what about Mark Ingram? Well, Mark Ingram is in a touch squeeze. If there's any running back in the backfields that we've talked about that I'm not enthusiastic about, it's absolutely Mark Ingram. I mean, Mark Ingram has never been a great athlete. Mark Ingram has always been propelled by opportunity based on draft capital from five years ago. And now the Saints are telling you with their offseason moves, we're picking up Adrian Peterson, we're drafting Alvin Kamara. We don't view Mark Ingram as our featured back any longer. We just don't. We don't think he's our workhorse. And Mark Ingram has received that message. Friends of the Roto Underworld podcast in Las Vegas have passed along the note to me. I received a note just slid across my desk from an Underworld Pod listener in Las Vegas saying that he saw Mark Ingram in Las Vegas, just rampaging through the club scene in Las Vegas, doing everything. Everything that Las Vegas has to offer, Mark Ingram was doing all of it. That means he wasn't at home working out, not focused on his strength and conditioning, not focused on refining his craft, and not focused on ensuring that he passes any tests that the league may administer. This makes sense. You're Mark Ingram. You see your franchise draft Adrian Peterson, draft Alvin Kamara. That's just a big fuck you to Mark Ingram. That's what that was. You know that's how Mark Ingram processed those moves. He processed the moves as a fuck you because the team was already conspiring against him in years previously, taking Mark Ingram out in goal line situations and replacing him with Tim Hightower. Tim Hightower's usage the last two years was an affront to Mark Ingram. It was the equivalent of the team saying, fuck you, double middle fingers. And that's what Mark Ingram's probably doing right now. So it makes sense that at this point in the offseason, Mark Ingram would just be like, you know what, fuck it. Now, another backfield tandem that no one's talking about is in Oakland because the focus is on Marshawn Lynch. But I think there's a tandem there. I think that Marshawn Lynch will be splitting carries with DeAndre Washington. Marshawn Lynch was not good two years ago, and then he took a year off. I don't think that he is equipped to be an every-down bell cow back in the NFL like he was in Seattle. And I think that the change of pace back will be DeAndre Washington. It will not be Jalen Rashard. Why? Because Jalen Rashard's a non-athlete. I think Jalen Rashard will experience an efficiency regression this year because he is a replacement level talent in the league, but DeAndre Washington is not. DeAndre Washington has juice, has receiving capability. I think DeAndre Washington will be both the change of pace back and the satellite back for the Oakland Raiders. I think he'll be fantasy relevant. This is one of those backfields that can support two fantasy viable running backs. So like Marlon Mack, like Alvin Kamara, I think that DeAndre Washington can have standalone value and be that insurance policy slash lottery ticket. So if you're drafting Marshawn Lynch, you have to draft DeAndre Washington. You have to, because we don't know what Marshawn Lynch is going to be. We're not going to know until week one of the NFL season what any of us have in Marshawn Lynch. So if any running back in the league needs an insurance policy, it's Marshawn Lynch. And the insurance policy also just happens to be a lottery ticket in DeAndre Washington. Look at DeAndre Washington's breakaway run rate on playerprofiler.com. 8.1%. 
So in close to 10% of his carries, DeAndre Washington was breaking away for 15 plus yards. And despite a snap share under 30%, he still logged 17 receptions. So that snap share goes up, that reception count's going to go way up. DeAndre Washington's athletic. Across the board, runs a sub 4 5 40, above average agility score, overall Spark X score, 124.4, 84th percentile, because for a small running back, he's compact and strong. Bench press 225, 24 times. And even though he's 205 pounds, because he's so slight in height, his 31.0 BMI is in the 71st percentile. So you look at DeAndre Washington, you see a small running back, but it's deceiving because of the BMI. So if something happens to Marshawn Lynch, either he's completely ineffective because he's washed and he gets benched, or he gets hurt, DeAndre Washington will have an opportunity to be the Oakland Raiders workhorse. Now, looking across the backfields in the NFL, what about in San Francisco? You hear a lot about Joe Williams, right? Joe Williams, exciting Joe Williams, very fast, also runs a sub 4 five forty. love Joe Williams. Kyle Shanahan, pound to the table for Joe Williams, gotta love Joe Williams. No, we don't love Joe Williams because this isn't one of the prolific offenses. Their quarterback's Brian Hoyer! Their quarterback is Brian Hoyer! How can you be excited about any player on the San Francisco 49ers when their quarterback is Brian Hoyer? And if it's not going to be Brian Hoyer, it's going to be Matt Barkley. How could you be excited about this? You can't. Yes, Pierre Garçon is a value. Yes, technically, yes. Carlos Hyde may be a value. Technically, yes. But these are not players you're excited about. These are not players where you look down the roster and you go, wow, I got some really high ceiling players. Great potential here if things break right. No! You consolidate the backfields on the prolific offenses, on the offenses that could theoretically support two fantasy viable running backs in tandem. San Francisco is not capable of that. If you're drafting Joe Williams, it's just a handcuff play only. It's a pure handcuff play. And you don't handcuff running backs on anemic offenses. That's not how you win in fantasy football. Handcuffing running backs on anemic offenses is the easiest way to waste a draft pick in fantasy football. Well, I take that back. Drafting a backup quarterback in a one-quarterback league, that's the single biggest waste of a draft pick. But short of drafting a second quarterback in a one-quarterback league, it would be handcuffing a running back on an anemic offense. And it doesn't matter who the offensive coordinator is. So anyone that's listened to this show recently knows that I am not a Joe Williams enthusiast and I spend a significant amount of time mocking Joe Williams' enthusiasm. The reason why I'm not enthusiastic about Joe Williams, other than the fact that he's a running back for the San Francisco fucking 49ers, is that he's not an exceptional athlete. 113.1 Spark X scores, 54th percentile. So he's an average athlete, best comparable to Jeremy Langford. He was relatively productive in the Mountain West at Utah. So he was relatively productive against non-Power 5 conference competition And he wasn't active out of the backfield in the passing game in any way whatsoever. A college target share below 5%. So Joe Williams checks very few boxes and he's on the wrong team. Those are the reasons why I'm avoiding Joe Williams at his current Dynasty Rookie Draft ADP. But in a previous show, I also mentioned that at one point in time, Joe Williams retired from football. That's why when the season starts, he'll be 24 years old. But so many of you want to focus on that sliver of analysis. 
just an aside to explain his relatively late breakout age, that's what the buzzards want to focus on. Matt, don't you understand? Joe Williams walked away from football due to emotional distress after his sister died. You're so ignorant, Fantasy Mansion. How did you not know that? There's a reason why he retired. Yeah, I need to get my facts straight, right? And beyond that, I need to memorize the personal backstory of every prospect before I turn on this microphone and talk about them. I mean, is that the standard? Is that the standard? Is this what you require for anyone to talk about football players on a podcast? They have to have a complete understanding of the full breadth of the person's personal backstory? If that's the standard, there would be no sports content available because no one could possibly know the personal backstory of every player. No, I did not know Joe Williams' sister died. All I knew was Joe Williams has a gap in his college resume because he left Utah and then came back. Such a weird expectation that I would be the all-knowing football podcaster. The omniscient one. You people are the worst. The worst! And I should be specific. It's not you people podcast listeners. It's not even you people Twitter followers. It's specifically you people YouTube commenters. The YouTube commenters are the worst. I complain about the Twitter trolls. Twitter trolls are nothing compared to the YouTube trolls. Going on Twitter is like going to a spa retreat. Going to YouTube is like entering a post-apocalyptic dystopia. You should go to check out our YouTube channel. Check it out. YouTube.com. Type in Roto Underworld Radio. You can check out our YouTube channel. Click on any video. Scroll down and you'll see the comments. And they are just gross. Just hindsight bias. Told you so. Jerk messages. That's all you get. And so many sports fans are so insecure in their own knowledge. Because all they're doing is just listening for that one gap in my understanding of a player. That one sliver of knowledge that the troll can wave over me and say, Ha ha ha, Fantasy Mantran, I knew something you didn't know. I knew that Joe Williams' sister died. You didn't. I'm smarter than you. How insecure is that? That's just sports, though. That's sports and sports radio right there. You idiot, how did you not know this? You idiot, how did you not know this? I knew this. I'm smart. Give me credit. Why? Why does sports, and fantasy sports in particular, just inspire so many insecure assholes? I don't come to your job with told-you-so analysis, but this is the life I've chosen. This is my profession. I am a professional sports podcaster, and everyone in the world thinks they can do my job better than I can. 